Hi, it's G3, and on this week's show, Mike Edwards and I will be joined by our good friend Sultan Meji. Until recently, Sultan was the chief innovation officer at the FDIC and an advisor to the Biden administration on technology policy. He is also a professor at Duke University and an advisor to Reciprocal Ventures, America's Frontier Fund, and several other companies. He's also a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a distinguished member of the Bretton Woods Committee, and a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute. In the past, he's also served as an advisor to the U.S. government on numerous issues, including cybersecurity, quantum computing, and AI. He's also a serial entrepreneur who has founded companies that span fintech, life sciences, and information technology. This episode is longer than normal given the breadth of Sultan's vast experience, but I think it's worth it. So please, check important disclosures at the end of the episode and enjoy this wide-ranging conversation. Sultan, Mike and I are delighted to have you with us today, and we have so much to cover with you. I'm just going to dive right in. When you left the Biden administration, you didn't hold back your criticism of our national approach to tech policy. And you recently said, as it related to crypto and other innovations, that if we continue to regulate by enforcement, we risk, quote, playing by someone else's rules, opening our mobile phone to use the digital yuan to pay for Apple Pie or an Apple iPhone. Let's just start there. What did you witness inside the administration and what are you observing now that is compelling you to make such dire warnings? First off, G3, uh, Michael, I'm, thank you for having me. I'm a huge fan of this podcast. As soon as you guys started doing it, it became you know the must listen for me on Fridays when I was uh, trying to unwind from the week and my brain would start going even faster and you know, I, I would not unwind. <laughs> That's an um, enormous compliment, it, by the way, was, so uh, you don't take it lightly. Yeah, this is, this is going to be fun. In my role in the government, I had the opportunity to advise on a number of issues relating to emerging technologies, artificial intelligence, crypto, quantum computing, you know, cybersecurity, et cetera. And one of the challenges we have in the U.S. government right now, and it's kind of the overarching theme that that most recent op-ed you know, touches on a little more, is we do not make policy anymore. We do not make strategic policy anymore. We do not work as a unified government to say we need to pass laws that encourage innovation, for example, or more security that are then executed by the president and, and his agencies. And so in a variety of cases, and crypto is kind of the biggest glaring example right now, because of this grayness, because of such a big gap between legislation passed 80 years ago and what we have to get done today to protect our country and to foster America as the leading voice, not just in emerging technology, but also financial services and just to be that leading voice, that gray area now is being used to stifle those things by putting, frankly, ridiculous implementations or interpretations of law. And so with crypto, we're seeing something that I call regulation by enforcement. There is no law saying crypto is legal. There's also no law saying crypto is illegal. And so a bunch of unelected Brussels-style EU bureaucrats buried in D.C. are arbitrarily making decisions based on what they feel like at any given point. And it's not a national dialogue. It's not something that we are building to position our country for success. And we see it also, by the way, with the recent AI strategy, which 
man, that thing has so many warts on it. It's not even funny. The one that I highlight for anyone who understands anything about technology is making an AI strategy or technical strategy where a requirement of doing anything is that there has to be a human who can do the exact same job, <laughs> which is, by the way, I think the most dangerous thing out there. That is insane. Wait, could you just repeat that just so yeah. we so understand? In the AI strategy, there's a specific tenet that says there has to be, for every AI system deployed, a non-technical system where a human does the exact same thing. That is an option. So if I go to my bank and I want to, for example, send money to G3 for buying me a sparkling water, okay? And that gets flagged by a, a fraud check or, or some sort of cybersecurity check for whatever reason. Right now, a huge amount of that is done by artificial intelligence in the financial sector. If you take this strategy to its conclusion, if that gets flagged, you or I, G3, could go to the institution and fight it and say, you have to rerun everything you do with a human doing every single step to prove that I am. A, so it's um, like a replicability standard? Yeah, basically. a human replicability standard. Right, right. But this is driven by a need to regulate using, you know, sort of previously codified regulations as opposed to some fear of the singularity or something like that? I mean, having tried to explain the singularity to a number of people <laughs> over the age of 70 in the government over the last few years, I would say let's not quite go there because uh, that one is right up there with explaining what the dark web was to an agency director, which I had to do. Like, Ray Kurzweil is not on the summer reading list for FDIC and the OCC? I, I don't think Ray Kurzweil is on a lot of reading lists yeah, right now in D.C. Fair um, enough. We're in a situation where we have this structural disconnect in the U.S. government between not making strategy and then building law building abilities to execute on that. But at the same time, people writing these interpretations have no idea about the technologies they're talking about, none whatsoever, right? So we have big concerns, or at least I have tremendous concerns. The things that keep me up at night have to do with quantum encryption. That's a big concern for me. Yep. Fusion energy IP, that's a big concern for me. Next generation telecommunications, you know, what happens after 5G, Right. These are all significant concerns. But the fact is, when you're having to explain what the dark web is or what the singularity is or what artificial intelligence actually is and what the difference between, for example, AI is as a logical construct and machine learning, which is a technical implementation of a subset of that mm -hmm. to people who, for the most part, don't have any STEM background and are 50 years out of going to any classroom. We are in a situation where. I just can't see anything good coming from these actions. These are all fundamentally designed to stop innovation. They're all fundamentally designed to move things out and to keep things in the status quo because, and this is a thing I get quoted on quite a bit, the planning horizon for most of the people who are making these decisions is less than 10 years because they're all going to be retired or they're going to yep. be dead, right? And that's not where we need to be. We need to have a planning horizon of a century because that's certainly how the Chinese Communist Party is thinking about things. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you're taking a personnel-based approach to this, I think, very accurate. But I think there's also a, let's call it a, a systems-based or a structural argument to be made here, which is G3 and I have talked about this on, on past episodes where the markets really like gridlock. If we zoom out from that phenomenon from a single midterm election or whatever – we systematically reward inaction in the positive space and predictable reaction in the negative space, meaning we can go and let's use recent examples, right? Like we can take what very early in this, but in terms of restricting Chinese semiconductor exports, we can craft some pretty 
effective <laughs> policy there. But with the actual ability to build our own or incentivize onshore fabs to incentivize a lot of the actual industrial organization around many of the concepts you just talked about, we're not doing anything, both bureaucratically or legislatively. To me, it's not just because you have past your career horizon as when this is going to land, but it's also for electeds and for the people that they appoint and confirm and all of the sclerosis and those processes. It's also the only things that we can have a be seen to have a mandate to do are basically mandatory appropriations that take until the 11th hour, 59th minute. And then what gets scribbled in the margins is sort of where the change happens. You're entering onto something that, that just I think a lot of people don't realize, which is up until really the 1990s, a huge amount of industrial innovation in this country, everything from primary research in government labs and academia all the way through to the first dollars into the most innovative companies out there from World War II all the way to the 90s. So over about 50 years was a government check that was appropriated, mm -hmm. that was organized. And so whether it was the telecommunications infrastructure of the United States being used to build the global telecommunications infrastructure, which was an incredible strategic advantage for us, mm -hmm. not just nationally, but also from a financial services perspective, it made it easy for the U.S. global reserve currency to be the currency that every bank used to move money around, right? Mm -hmm. That was on the back of investment by the U.S. government. An actual check got written back when checks were a thing, <laughs> like the fax machine, right? And we're at a point now where we see what has to happen over the next century in terms of the next generation of high-speed, low-energy wireless communications, in terms of real-time payments, in terms of all these things that we see coming. And the U.S. government just isn't writing a check for it. And there's no process set, systemic or otherwise. I would be okay mm -hmm. with a non-systemic process that got us to some of these checks just to get moving again. Mm -hmm. I would love it if it was systemic. We're not seeing it. What you have just described, Sultan, is clearly a very long-term issue. But nearer term, as we look to the fall, as we think about how the markets are going to potentially behave or not behave, as the case may be, notwithstanding the fact that the Russia-Ukraine war has been talked about in the business press, the general press, and has really been beaten to death in so many ways, I nevertheless wanted to get both of your input on this. As we head into the war's next phase, could you both separate the signal from the noise here as to what we should be paying attention to and what we should ignore? Because clearly headlines have the ability to move markets these days in general, and specifically as it relates to the situation in Ukraine, those headlines can move things quite a bit. So let me just start with you, Mike, and then Sultan, yeah. if you would, just please comment. I think just framing maybe two points that get lost from the focus on the day-to-day -day headlines of this skirmish and that and tactical nuke this. And not that I mean to diminish that, but a lot of that, like I said, rip from the headlines mentality. I think the first is really an economic one. And it is a, we use the word pivot a lot in a lot of different uh, ways, but I do think that there is an economic pivot afoot that may outlast Putin, which is eastward for Russia. The, in particular, the Nord Stream 1 sabotage and that sort of thing, I, I believe was for a Russian audience, not a global audience where, and you even corrected me, I think, on one of our internal calls or because I couldn't remember. I think it's Cortez burning the ships when he arrives at the new world moment in the sense of we're not going back to the status quo ex ante. And so your point is that, that Putin yes. blew up it, Nord Stream. And by the way, w whether or not that specific piece of intelligence is accurate or not is less important than the broader phenomenon of Putin is not going back to the model of supplying cheap gas 
to Europe as a means of economic wherewithal. And so the second point is that the strategy in the immediate term, let's call it three to six months, not two years, let's say. And unfortunately, you may not have thought this back in February, March when this started, but there is going to be tension here for years and years, not months and months. I think for the next phase, the goal is to establish a wedge between Europe and Ukraine. And whether that's economic in terms of pain tolerance or it's, and you're even starting to see this emerge right now, no thanks to Elon Musk, I suppose, is this idea of like, well, at some point we have to talk about what a ceasefire stroke cessation looks like and those that are willing to engage versus those that aren't. I think the vectors of that wedge are going to be very important and they are going to be painted with much bigger brushes than who controls Kherson or what this skirmish was or how many of the new conscripts are well-armed or what have you. Is the wedge, though, between Ukraine and Europe or is the wedge that Putin wants to create between Germany and France, Sultan? Well, first off, I'm going to say I agree with almost exactly everything Mike just said. Then we're going to cut it. Well, (laughs) hold on. There's going to be an exception. Okay, good. But, but... But the issue that Putin has is fundamentally a resource management issue. That's if you want to talk signal versus noise, that is the signal that we are not quite paying enough attention to, I think, right? Whether it is munitions, whether it is people, whether it is fuel, whether it is military hardware, whether it is food to feed his people. Russia is always a far closer to the edge of famine than anybody realizes. Now, the Russians are just used to that. Right. Eat bread, drink vodka. You know, that's a hot Friday night in many parts of Russia. Right. And their leaders survived the siege of Leningrad. Right? Right. So. Even though those guys have all been dead for right. a well, long time. Right. But like, you know, they, that's a cultural. Formerly. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It's, right. It's a cultural component to them. Right. So they can live closer to the edge than, for example, anyone in Germany could currently. And so Putin is in a situation where, you know, one big piece of signal, I think, is just resources. And that's why I think the nuke conversation has become such a big deal, because he's kind of running out of everything else whether it's, you know, bullets or sabo rounds or whatever, right? So that's one big piece of, of, of signal. The other signal is a resource issue on the Ukrainian side. There are huge amounts of industrial capacity in Western Europe that are offline because of things that were being built in Ukraine or food that was getting processed off of grain grown in Ukraine, right? Six months ago, I think a number of very smart people started saying we need to pay attention to the agricultural situation in Ukraine as we get into the fall. That will be a harbinger of this. And I think that's exactly right. And I think we're starting to see that. Now, it's actually good for the United States because after Trump destroyed the soybean crop in the United States a few years ago, this gives us an opportunity back. And we, you know, our farming community. Sorry, really just, just for our listeners, through yeah. the Chinese tariffs. Yes, the Chinese tariffs, right? The Chinese were buying American soybeans not because they had to, but because it was kind of politically viable. Trump killed that was some significant percentage of American soybean just didn't get sold one year. And so those farmers went off and did other things. And an example, which is kind of funny and a total tangent is in Missouri, which was one of the larger soybean producing areas in the U.S., it, a huge amount of that land got replaced by growing marijuana. And so if you want to find the most uh, vibrant economic marijuana industry in the United States. It's amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's got a huge regulatory compliance. They, they made Ozarks about the wrong drug, apparently. <laughs> Wait for season eight, yeah, nine, right, whatever, exactly. right? Yeah. So Missouri is the, the show me state is now the cannabis state. Show me the pot state, I guess. <laughs> show me the ganja. <clears throat> Fascinating. All right. So bring it back home here. Getting back to your signal versus noise with Russia and Ukraine in particular, Strategically, we have a fascinating situation. We have two 
large powers between Russia and the People's Republic of China that both have, in essence, a satellite that they didn't control that they want to control. The Russians have put all this effort into trying to control Ukraine and got the heck smacked out of them. I'll keep it G-rated for the kids that are listening in social studies. This is a big issue because if Mike is correct on this eastward shift, which I think is absolutely correct, at some point, Russia and China are going to go head to head. And if you've read the Tom Clancy book, it doesn't go well for either of them, which I highly recommend reading because it's absolutely (laughs) hilarious because it was written 25 years ago or something. But it does change the dynamic. And it's one thing that I, you have to give full credit to the people engineering some of these situations or taking advantage of these situations in the U.S. intelligence and defense communities. They are positioning it so that China and Russia are eventually going to have to deal with each other head on. And that to me is probably the most interesting thing out of this whole Ukrainian invasion is it has completely solidified NATO as a wall. Is it though? I mean, I think, I think, so. I think Germany and France are kind of at each other's teeth these days now. I think any time when Germany and France aren't yelling at each other publicly, Germany invades France. And so I'm actually kind of <laughs> preferencing that they're, you know, yelling at each other diplomatically and then they're going to get what they get out of it. You they know, want France. this pipeline built through Spain and the French are saying no, right? Yeah. And you know what? Eventually the Germans will figure out how to pay for enough baguettes that they'll say we. Okay. I think the French and Germans, this is kabuki theater. I think they have spent centuries, you know, dancing around each other. You know, a very smart friend of mine a few years ago said that in the U.S. we play uh, checkers, grand strategy players play chess, and that a big concern with the PRC was always that they were playing Go. Well, I don't know what's past Go, but I feel like we found some people who are playing it in Western Europe, in the United States, and I want to buy him a drink because I think we're starting to actually see some intriguing offensive behaviors that are going to establish a better world order. The problem is it's going to take 15 years, and I hope not nuclear weapons, but it certainly looks like we're going down that path. When you say we're going down that path, can you be very specific as to what you mean by going down that path? You're talking about the use of tactical nuclear weapons by Putin? I am talking about nuclear weapons becoming a far more reasonable version of real politique in the century than I think any of us thought was going to happen. I think it will be tactical to start, but it, it is now an active part of discussion. Like at this point, it's almost going to be surprising if Putin doesn't use nuclear weapons. Over a population or over some other mass? It's interesting. There's a lot of talk over the last you know, 48 hours about how Putin might not nuke directly. He might nuke part of the Black Sea in order to make it an inaccessible port but, what does Erdogan do? Right, Where's exactly. the reaction? Yeah. Right. I mean, you come up with a list of very likely to have or very easy to acquire nuclear weapon states, and it's, you know, low 20s, right? You know, I think I did a list before we started recording, and I got to 20 or so, and then I stopped. But I did not include Turkey, by the way, which was a mistake. I should have included. A list of? A potential nuclear weapon states. Right. And uh, like I, overt plus covert, basically. Exactly. Equals right. 20. Right. If you study nuclear history of the last 50 years, you know, the chapter on South Africa, a lot of people would be like, wait, South Africa had nuclear weapons? What? And the apartheid government of South Africa in the 80s, completely unknown to everyone, built an entire nuclear weapons program and set one off in the South Atlantic and freaked everyone out for about two weeks because it set off everything. And it was a very high quality device. They could tell by all this. And finally, the South African ambassador to the U.S. finally just had to say to the Americans, yeah, yeah, that was us. We were just kind of proving we could do it. So on that note, as we think about X factors for the fall, want to get both of you to comment on the possibility that Iran may ultimately declare itself a nuclear power. 
Mike, do you want to start? I, I will start. I'm probably the least informed at this table on this topic. I would say that in terms of significant, maybe not accidental, but certainly orthogonal beneficiaries from the conflict, I would put the Middle East at the top of the list. And by the way, I mean, I haven't been personally, but I happen to have just been with someone who was recently in Dubai and Riyadh and talking about it is absolutely bull market fuego in especially Dubai right now. And this isn't just because of what's happened with the oil price. I mean, if you're a super yacht owning Russian oligarch, where's your yacht parked? I'm going to go with the Persian Gulf. But I think that as far as where there are significant potential imbalances or rebalances of the erstwhile power structure, the Middle East is also at the top of the list in terms of what happens when you flip a switch from covert to overt nuclear capabilities. And we spend a lot of time on that sort of Israeli-Iranian axis that I think what we have not been hearing a lot about among neocons, among the intelligence community is like the Israeli bunker busting bombs and taking out those capabilities like that. That all of a sudden went quiet, didn't it? I, I mean, that, that's exactly right. It is at an inflection point. And we're in a situation where every couple of, you know, let's say every half generation or so domestic activities in Iran swing one way or another. And Iran is naturally the largest democracy in the Middle East, like just full stop. It naturally, is. not a democracy today, but it has the potential to be a democracy. It, it absolutely does. That's why I say naturally and not actually. Okay. Naturally it is because it has the, you know, my favorite expression this week is the Islamic MAGA guys running around in charge of that country right now. <laughs> which is like 15% of the population. And then you've got 85% of the population who are fundamentally very young, fundamentally very liberal, fundamentally fairly educated. That's a natural place for democracy to live. It's just really tough, especially for the U.S. because of its history to foster that activity. If it wasn't for this... Not for lack of trying. Well, not, yeah, right. I mean, I think especially <laughs> post-1979, right? right. right? You know, well, the, if you talk to any market participant, our 20s rhyme with the 70s, don't they? Oh, so yeah, totally. maybe we're supposed to be back there. I mean... In Iran, we have this domestic inflection moment happening right now. You also have, because of all these other activities, as well as, by the way, fairly rigorous financial regulatory actions on the part of the United States over the last couple of years, a massive refocusing of economic activity in the Middle East. And I think Abu Dhabi, Dubai are, I mean, it's Casablanca before World War II. Mm. It's Beirut at any point right before it got blown up. Pick your war, right? And we're in a situation where... The Saudis and the Americans are now kind of grumbly with each other for a variety of reasons. You've got the Israelis in the middle of an election. You have Syria kind of still a dumpster fire. You've got all this amazing economic activity in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. They're not exactly the closest with the Saudis, right? They're you know, kind of naturally, but not really. Then you have Iran, which has a massive, probably first time in a couple of decades, this tremendous domestic political challenge that the leadership has. It would not be the worst thing in the world for them to declare themselves a nuclear weapons state. And I think, you know, a lot of people, including me, think they're farther along than we realize. I think the removal of the nuclear deal with the United States five, six years ago by the Trump administration really did, I think, accelerate that program far more than we generally talk about. And so if they did, then the dominoes fall. Saudi would have to declare something. Turkey would probably have to declare something. Pakistan is already there. India is already there. You have now eight countries, yep. no three of whom actually get along all in this little replay. And all of a sudden I'm thinking about Sarajevo in the 19 teens, except look, instead look. of the shot heard around the world, it's the double flash seen around the world. Yeah. Can I ask this about, you know, scotch tape and chewing gum that's holding the status quo together? This administration 
And it's sort of no coincidence that Jake Sullivan was one of the architects of that deal originally and is now NSA advisor, right? Or head of the NSA. He's the national security advisor. The national security advisor. Sorry, he's not the NSA. Thank you. They have more or less killed this deal, but they have not held a funeral for it, right? How significant is that in terms of the moment that this crumbles in public view? Hope springs eternal, I think. Seriously? I mean, I live in D.C. Like, it's an active conversation. There's still a lot of people who technically are working on it. There's still a lot of people who think there might be a chance for this to come back. I can't see it happening, but there's a lot there. One of the most interesting things about the the kind of post-nuclear deal, global nuclear landscape, kind of G3 getting back to your, your kind of layout question is, for the better part of 80 years, just shy of 80 years, we have always assumed nuclear weapons were a do not pass go moment, you know, world right. war three level kind of problem, right? Treated as a binary. It is binary. Right. It is you use nukes or you don't use nukes and you only use nukes if it's end of democracy kind of stuff. The Nazis come back, although that probably isn't going to age very well given <laughs> certain things. We are at a moment where, and this is probably one of the few really negative outputs of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is it is now no longer a binary. It is now a degrees conversation. And that is terrifying to me because yeah. you're saying it's been normalized. It's, it is now normalized. Right. And I mean, to the point that and Mike, you can probably comment on this yeah. a little bit. Like the markets have kind of priced in some of this. Markets have not I, priced I, in I, Iran saying. No, no, no. I'm talking about Russia. Ukraine. OK, I'm yeah. talking about Russia. I, Ukraine, not I, Iran. Yeah. I mean, I think it has made its way into narratives enough that it'll go from a indescribable Sigma event to like a 10 Sigma event. Right? You can put a number on it. Right, right? exactly. And that has never been true. Right? I agree. I, I agree. That has never been true. And so I, I just I'm not sure if it's the, you know, effectively the global media or the press that have normalized this or diplomatic core or some comedy. I just it's hard for me to ascribe an intentionality to that normalization as opposed to it just sort of being a naturally occurring phenomena when there's a focus on something that gets repeated enough. See, the causal factor to me is almost less relevant than the that, fact that, it, that it's there. And there that's are prob- and probably within a mile and a half of us, there are a couple of macro guys who have done some trades on an assumption Yeah, based on this, right? Well, I mean, I had a discussion at a dinner last week with some pretty smart energy people about if you'd ran the experiment, red headline, even if it's tactical nuke underwater in the Black Sea or something like that, right? Does the price of, does the spot price of oil go up or down? And if I were to summarize it, there are many other ways of getting to those questions. But I would say, you know, your down is going to be all activity halts the, you know, suppress everything. And your up is, well, that's the response to that in the necessary response is a conventional response from NATO, which basically blasts all Russian forces within Ukraine because that's there has to be a response and that's it. And then you're in conventional World War Three. And that is like hugely energy consumptive and arms races and energy buildup and whatever, and that spikes oil and who knows what. Anyway, you can make arguments both ways. I don't actually have a strong view myself, but the fact that we're even talking about it in that way is the point. And and you're right in terms of normalization. The the discussion proves the point. Right. I mean, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, as the Soviet Union was collapsing and we were Senator Nunn and our government took a tremendous set of work to secure the nuclear weapons that were in Ukraine that they gave up on a promise that Russia would right. never invade them, by right. the way, which, you know, that's, yeah. that's a too bad. Senator Nunn, another Speaking of things that didn't age well, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're in a situation where we have now normalized things that were previously not normalized in terms of foreign policy and military activities. Yeah. You know, the notion that someone would use cyber weapons to take down an entire country's energy grid is now all of a sudden not as bad as nuking them. 
well, guess what? If it's not as bad as nuking them, even on the lowest end of the non-binary, you're in a situation where it's probably going to happen. Yeah. Right. The thing that is a natural consequence of this normalization of, I'm sort of making it up, but let's call it a 10 sigma event, is that it adds to the weight and likelihood of deployment of different asymmetric means exactly. of warfare. Exactly. Right. And some of it is cyber and, but there, I mean, sabotage, and we've seen numerous instances over the last two weeks of what is assuredly Russian sponsored sabotage of various European infrastructure assets. And like, it probably makes a front page, but it's below the fold now. And it's this sort of, I used this phrase earlier today in a different setting. It's sort of a frog in the pot phenomenon of like all of a sudden asymmetric warfare is normalized and here we are. Well, here's a great example. And I would ask the audience without Googling this to say, are you aware that offensive cyber actions by the Russians are taking out satellite communications all across Western Europe? That is a known thing. It's been going on. It's in open source media, not just Starlink, but other systems. And a huge number of people I talk to don't know that that's been going on. Now, it's not huge. It's not like taking out everything, but it's like they are clearly doing this. And is it getting reported? It is, but not even below the fold. It's like page three. All right. Well, in terms of things above the fold, I just want to try and pin you down. Would you agree that there is a non-zero chance that the Iranians will look and see how much leverage Russia has gained by potentially threatening to use nuclear weapons and declare themselves a nuclear state? Yes. In fact, I would say it's not just Iran, although they're probably closest to that because it has a tremendous domestic capability for them that right mm. now none of their normal actions are actually solving. I think we've talked a lot about how the PRC is eyeballing what's going on in Ukraine very closely as a way to think about Taiwan. And I think Xi at the Congress a few days ago made it very clear that he feels emboldened. Now, there might be a little bit of gloss on the pig or whatever yeah, appropriate lipstick, yeah, right, metaphor there is. But the fact is, again, it's now all of a sudden they see Taiwan as we're, we're going to solve that. This is going to be a rare instance where I disagree at the margins on the Taiwan question. I certainly agree, which is how we got here, that... When we talk about, and I got to be honest, I don't really like this term, but talk about the axis of autocracy. And I don't like it because there's a lot of propagandist rhetoric around it's that. It's hyperbolic. It's yeah. hyperbolic, yeah. But, but at least sort of what are, if there is such an axis, what are the foundations of that axis? Well, nuclear capability is probably towards the top of the list. I mean, the only reason the hermit kingdom, North Korea, actually exists today is because they're a nuclear power. Let's, that's Absolutely. It, the only reason. So it's not a, certainly not a new phenomenon. There are absolutely similarities and reasons for scrutiny that create the Taiwan-Ukraine metaphor. And I agree with the framing of these satellite states and ambitions. And there's also a lot of, let's call it historical determinism at work there, albeit some major differences between Ukraine and Taiwan. But as far as what's just happened at the NPC being a bluster, I agree with, a step forward towards those ambitions, I'm not so sure. I think that what we really have is continuity along a vector or a spectrum that we should have always expected that the dial to get continuously turned over, not clear what the duration is. I know Tony Blinken was just on the tape saying it's, they're going to act sooner than we thought, but frankly, that sooner than we thought could be five years, not 10 years, as opposed to five months, not five years, which is, I think, the way a lot of people interpret that. And I think that there were very real defense considerations around the Taiwan question and that those are changing dramatically. But I think the insecurity that 
China has experienced vis-a-vis the Ukraine conflict is as much economic and resource related as anything else. NATO plus Japan, basically. That was shocking to the Chinese and they want to avoid that like the plague. But then number two, the actions, and this is really fresh in the past weeks, that the U.S. has taken on the semiconductor capabilities front are totally game-changing. And I don't think we've seen response vectors there. And I don't think Taiwan is one of them. Well, you, you just hit on like three of my favorite topics. So I'm, Ooh, just trying to, I'm trying to roll back here, which is I think, you know, Mike, this is the first time you and I haven't 100% agreed on something. One of the things that's great about you is it, like – It's you, good. I could be wrong frequently. Well, and now well, I know I'm wrong because well, we don't agree. No. <laughs> no, no, no. It's great because we come to things in totally different ways. So the Iran – to try to answer G3's question, the Iran to China thing that I was going for there was basically Iran realizing that there's a moment in time. Right. Where they can get away with a lot more and get the domestic political benefit of it without as much of a foreign policy hit. So that really is my full answer to your question, G3. Now, the parallel with the PRC right now is you look at their domestic challenges. You look at some of the issues that they've had recently, long-term impact of Hong Kong, some of the domestic trials and tribulations they've had among some of their foreign policy actions that got a lot of noise more so than they were prepared for. You look at the economic issues they're having right now, not just energy infrastructure, which is, I think, a lot of issues that they're having there that they didn't quite realize were as bad as they were. And now they're kind of running around trying to solve it. They have a generational issue similarly to ours, except it's a you know, couple yep. hundred million people yep. instead of tens of millions of people. Yep. They have a, a looming healthcare crisis with you know roughly a third of their population being pre-diabetic or diabetic. Right, which is going to cause a significant pressure on their healthcare system because you have a bunch of middle class and upper middle class people, but all of a sudden they have socialist public health system. Yep. That's going to be a huge without challenge. a massive public pension plan with nothing, no yep. economic power sitting behind no, that. No, I mean, the irony of a communist country with no safety net is kind of amazing. Yeah, if we were just just talk about ironies with the PRC, we'd be here for hours. Yes, and, hours. and who said they're a communist country, Mike? I do. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're an authoritarian state. I'm not so sure they're communists. Yeah. Let's invite G over. He can defend this next time he's uh, he's in New York. Um, but, I, but I think your point on, and I, I think you're going to a, a geographic one as well, but on all of these vectors, what's amazing about the history of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, yep. G3, yep. is the name only. that they, and I'm being intentionally existential with this comment, but they expand well, they consolidate poorly. Hmm. In every sense, right? And at this point in time, they're obviously not expanding economically very well or for that. I mean, technologically, maybe, but to the extent that they need in the way that Iran to bring these things back may need sort of a show of force to consolidate. Taiwan's an easy nationalistic point for them. So I agree with that aspect. Yeah. And then now you get into the second part of the conversation, which is basically high tech. So I should disclose I'm an advisor to America's Frontier Fund, obviously very closely linked to the CHIPS Act, which was kind of the first step of this multi-step strategy around advanced technical manufacturing that started with that and then has now moved to significant sanctions against the PRC's entities around this, which, by the way, this is so long overdue. I mean, this should have been done 20 years ago. I'm so happy that this is in place, and I don't think the PRC is really going to realize how tough it's going to be. This is a 20-year problem that just got handed to them because there are 
less than 10 companies in the world that build the technology used to build the next generation of chips and to build the next generation of chip manufacturing capabilities. Guess what? Those are almost all American companies. It is one of the few places. One of them's Dutch, basically. Yeah. Dutch. ASML. Yeah. And then all the others are American. Yep. It is one of the few places where we're really in an amazing spot there. But just to sort of push back on that a little bit, I read a headline recently that China's SMIC recently produced a chip the size of seven nanometers. And that seemed to indicate that, you know, maybe there is homegrown potential in China to potentially keep up with the U.S. manufacturing. What would you say to that? But there's an open question as to whether that production can be supported without U.S. IP and without U.S. parts to maintain the lithography equipment and everything else that goes into that production. And so doing it once with access to U.S. IP is one thing. Doing it repeatedly in the the future is a... I hear they're selling those chips to power crypto-related mining equipment. Wow. That's... For what it's worth. Seven nanometers is... What do they say? It's like last year's fashion. So, I, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, three is the new black. Three nanometers. Three is the new black. <laughs> well, and, so, and the standards the BIS is regulating towards is 14 nanometers. Yeah. In other words, they're going to restrict anything to yeah. five years ago. Black or fashion yeah, or whatever. Right, exactly. Right? So you have that piece. The other piece is just having a, a fab that can produce a seven nanometer chip using other people technology. Okay, that's that's fine. I mean, but then... That is not the same thing as what we're trying to accomplish with the sanctions. We're talking about high-performance computing. We're talking about the next generations of technologies. It would be like you telling me that there is a company in China that has finally produced a Bosch-level fuel injector for a BMW engine, which still has never managed to be done. And they've been working on this for 50 years, right? If I have any sort of engine in a car I care about, I'm buying a Bosch fuel injector. I'm not buying a Chinese one. Just full stop. Like, they just don't make them well, right? And it's not just that it's a kind of fussy piece of technology. It is. But it is also that they can't build the manufacturing capacity, right? They don't have a workforce enough to do this. And so they have to build in significant automation. There are a lot of really good stories recently talking about kind of long-term PRC issues with supply chain because they have to build in automation at the beginning instead of building the factory and then automating as they go, which is what all the rest of us do. We're in a situation where... Sort of like the FDIC thinks about AI. Uh, <laughs> I, I wish we I were could, on video. I can see that that's still raw. <laughs> yeah, I wish we were on video. The the look on my face, I can already tell, would have been, would have been the shot for the podcast. Yeah. So, Sultan, it's safe to say that the PRC will ultimately respond to this action taken by the Biden administration. Of the range of possibilities, could you describe what you think is the base case and what would be an extreme and what would be a very moderate response by the PRC? That's an interesting question because for up until about five to 10 years ago, when the PRC wanted to respond economically to something like this, they would, in essence, stop buying American stuff. So they'd stop buying Boeing jets. They'd stop buying Dell computer. They'd stop buying things that we made. The challenge is, is there's not a lot left for them to buy because they have a domestic capacity. So, you know, their own airline company that makes airplanes that don't always crash, you know, they have their own car manufacturing capabilities. Now the questions then move into, is Apple going to be allowed to manufacture in China? Is Tesla going to be able to allow to be manufactured in China? Although I think Elon uh, really did his bona fides there by wading into the Taiwan question not too long ago. <laughs> but I'll jump right past that part. I would say the challenge the Chinese have right now is the toolbox isn't as big as it used to be because they've built up such an internal capacity, right? Even to the point of basically having the largest Navy in the world. They certainly have the largest Navy in the Pacific right now. And that's built with 
fundamentally domestic capacity. Like a lot of it was old gen Russian stuff, but they've actually started building their own things. They've got their own carrier that's you know improving right now. That's their own stuff. There isn't a lot left for them to stop buying from us. And so now it becomes kind of central bank level discussions. Can't they stop supplying us with pharmaceutical ingredients and other things where the U.S. and for that matter, the Western world is dependent on China? Maybe just in prompting, we should throw rare earths. Yeah. And rare earths too. Well, I mean, rare earth, I mean, we could have a whole separate discussion about rare earth because there are a lot of places that aren't China that have rare earth. And if you look at, for example, the needs of the next generation of fusion companies, you look at the next generation of chips, stuff like that. I start looking more and more at places like Mongolia and parts of Africa and northern Canada. Can I I just stop you right there? Because Mongolia is, I think, a very, very, very important topic. And I just will reference us back to the Russia-China pivot. If you will, that was my sort of term. And what is smack dab in between Russia <laughs> and China? Oh, see, this is exactly where I was going to distract from the actual hard question G3 just asked me where to say, you know, this is the thing. If I was the leadership of Mongolia, I would be terrified right now because Absolutely. you would have China and Russia staring at them. They could be knocked off in a weekend and all of a sudden it becomes part of one of those two countries. I would be terrified if I, I was. I happen to have just this last weekend explained to my kids what the Great Wall was and what it was built for and whatever. And <laughs> that is a historical reality that weighs on exactly this question. Yeah. So, but getting back to G3 to the rest of the question, especially around, you know, the healthcare side of things, it is kind of fascinating, right? Most drugs that are manufactured now by contract manufacturing organizations here in the U.S. use a lot of supply chain from China. And I'll tell you one story I heard fairly recently was that the largest CDMOs here in the U.S., the largest contract manufacturing organizations are like having to horse trade internally for things like bags and vials and things like that because the Chinese supply chain is so messed up still from COVID. And to me, there's a window where we are exposed on pharmaceuticals in particular, but therapies more broadly and consumables and reagents and things like that. That's going to fall away fairly quickly because that's a very easy thing to replace. Like the plastic bag you use to wrap a bunch of vials in to move it from one hood to another in a manufacturing site, not a big deal. And we're actually seeing some really interesting investments. The state of California is doing stuff. You're saying reagents could be replaced quickly if China decided to retaliate? They're already being replaced because one of the things that came out of COVID is we realized our healthcare infrastructure was far too reliant on single source or single supply chain weaknesses. And we've realized that's a big issue. On the chip side, 19 fabs are going to be built just in Texas. Governor Abbott has done an absolutely fantastic job kind of marshalling all of those resources, like $350 billion, I think, is the last check that I kind of added up between Samsung and TSMC and all the others. Yeah, I mean, there's $120, $150 billion going into New York because... Chuck Schumer happens to be the senator from New York. Right. I mean, just on the chip side, this has become a trillion dollar conversation in the last six months, right? On the healthcare side, for three years now, we've realized that we had a a strategically weakened healthcare ecosystem on therapeutics. It took a weekend to build the first COVID vaccine. It took six months to build the manufacturing capability, and that's the fastest a manufacturing capability has ever been built before. And then it took another nine months to scale it. And that nine months was mostly because of Chinese supply chain issues. It was not anything else. So and I know we've been talking a lot about geopolitics and industrial organization, but especially as it relates to the inflation question right now, we have long talked on this podcast about the re-regionalization and sort of decoupling of China and the U.S. having major implications. And they're obviously short-term inflationary. We can debate the long-term. But additionally, I think what we're hearing here is we're in the midst or on the dawn of a CapEx boom in the U.S. And 
that has major implications for employment and frankly, do we even have enough skilled employees to scale this? And then just before you respond to that, because I'm sure you have many things to respond to that. Oh, yeah. But that is a major question. But then there's also, I think, a very important question around uh, productivity and ROI. Because in across the board here, semis, therapeutics, healthcare infrastructure, we're going to make a lot of investments that are going to feel very gun to head. And whether or not these pay off or not, whether they're margin accretive or margin dilutive, like the CapEx, OpEx trade-off here is going to be enormous for mega cap corporates. I agree completely with all of that. It's an incredibly expensive proposition. We're talking tens of trillions of dollars, I think, is a really reasonable starting point to really get this sorted just in the areas we know about. And there are a bunch of areas we don't know about yet, right? We don't know that the next pandemic is going to be solvable by the mRNA infrastructure we put in place. It seems likely, hopeful, yep. but maybe not, right? That's number one. Number two is your point about workforce is an incredibly interesting one. So I've been a professor for years and years. I teach graduate school, either business or computer science. Ask me how many American students I've had in the last five years. I'm going to guess below 10%. At four out of, you know, roughly speaking between 100 and 150 students per year. And what's been the highest concentration of national? I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it. It's, anyway, it's but... all PRC. And what's most interesting is they are not just PRC ethnically, but they are PRC, went to PRC undergrad. Maybe they went to a U.S. undergrad. They are here to get their master's degree and then they're immediately going back. Maybe 10 or 15% of them are going to stay. And I'm not exactly teaching wealth management. I'm teaching how to build companies. I'm teaching cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, crypto. I'm teaching things that we are using to build the next generations of all these companies. We do not have a workforce that can do that right now. If you were to tell me, Sultan, here is $100 million, go off and build a AI company for healthcare analytics or something like that. It would take me two years to staff that company up and I would be fighting day and night to get grow and keep those people because we need orders of magnitude more than we have 10 times what we have in AI, probably 20 times what we have in cybersecurity biotech. It might be even higher. If I read between the lines, what you are saying is that it is in America's national security interests to open up immigration, particularly to skilled people who might be able to answer the call for all of those jobs we need for our technical future. Absolutely. Right? At the risk of, I happen to subjectively very strongly agree with that, but I, I want to remove the qualifier you put in there, which is the, you know, highly skilled and these sorts of jobs. We're at a moment right now in our policy where we're throwing, we've talked about this a lot from an inflation fighting standpoint, we're throwing everything we can at the wall. I would say that, and you can't wave a magic wand to do this to be clear, but the best way to get wages lower or to restrain wage growth is to open immigration. And well, that's but that's, across the board. But I said national security. I mean, what you're describing I'm is describing economic. economic security. Right. right. National yeah. security they're, being they're, high skilled they're, economic. They're related, then. but I, for I, sure. I actually yeah. don't see a difference between our national security and our national economic security. I, I, I see either. them as entirely the same yeah. thing. And so I would actually kind of combine the two things you guys just said. Like any person who wants to come to the United States and work, you should be able to get in. Now, does that mean you immediately get a security clearance and access to our nuclear missile silos? No, of course not. But we really need more workers. So that's kind of part one. Part two is fundamentally, we have to do three things. We have to get more people into the workforce now that not just have the skills, but work at kind of all the different yeah. salary points. Number two is we have to grow the people we have in the workforce 
so that they can do some of these other things. And frankly, no one is doing a good job of that. Yeah. And we're in a generational compression. Half as many Gen Xers in the workforce as there were in baby boomers. Yes. Right. So there's a compression going on there that we've got to mitigate. So we've got to get the millennials and youngers trained up faster in the workforce moving more aggressively. So that's the second thing we have to do. The third thing we have to do, we have to stop letting random people make decisions about educational curriculums, especially in the K-12. We have to put STEM front and center. And I'm, I'm sorry, I do think there have to be some degree of national standards around this because I can't have a kid from a rural state who is valedictorian fighting over a kid from an industrialized state who is also valedictorian being held to the same level when one took college classes, took all the AP classes, did X, Y, and Z, learned how to program, all this kind of stuff. And the other kid, you know, maybe took algebra too. Those two kids are not the same. And by the way, I would just say that in addition to STEM, I would argue that we need to teach history and civics in our country. And personal economics. Well, I mean, okay, the three of us are all Now we've got a really long list of things we need to teach. All (laughs) of us are old enough that at some point when we were in grade school, we took HOMAC and you learned how to balance a checkbook. You learned what a credit card was. You learned how to calculate APR, right? You learned how to go into the wood shop or the thing and, and figure out how to change the fuse in your house, all this kind of stuff. Right now, most of K-12 is daycare in this country. And I am shocked at what kids I am seeing just don't know how to do things. They just don't understand how things work. And I can't see that getting fixed because it is absolutely a tenet of one of the political parties that educational standards have to live at the local level. And you can agree or disagree with that if you want. But if the people making those decisions don't understand why we know that the earth orbits the sun and not the other way around, which... I have heard that discussion recently in a school board kind of discussion. We are in a situation where people who are ignorant, I'm not saying stupid, I'm saying ignorant of how the world actually works, how the universe actually operates, are deciding how to teach our kids. And that's just wrong. Of all the things we've talked about today, this is the one that that kind of frustrates me the most because I do not see a path for the United States being the leading nation in the world without solving the human capital issue that we just talked about. I don't see that. I don't see that happening. And because of that, I don't understand how we win. All right. Well, speaking of kids, I want to end by quickly talking about politics. What does that have to do with kids? Well, they're all children. Okay. I mean, it was my way of trying to transition by using a little bit of humor. (laughs) You did it. You did it. I'm the slow one. You did it. It clearly didn't land well. In these last few weeks leading up to the election, given the fact that you are both very keen observers of the current state of political affairs, if you could leave us with your insights as to what you're paying close attention to and what you are ignoring. Mike, I will start with you. What am I paying close attention to? Well, I think the in the House in particular, those races, I now think it's, I've been saying this for a while, but I don't think it's going to be particularly close. But how close it is, or rather the amount of padding, will be very important in terms of the future speaker, Kevin McCarthy's degrees of operating freedom, ability to maneuver a caucus or, you know, sort of at times not need to shepherd it and another times shepherd it. I think that's actually going to be very important. We've already heard in terms of weighing on topics we've talked about in our time together just now. He has come out and said that he's going to be more restrictive in funding Ukraine. What does that look like? Well, 
the composition of his caucus really matters in that question, like a lot. And that has major geopolitical implications. We're going to have debt ceiling debates, et cetera. So I think that's one really important thing. I also think that some of the state level races are very important. Certainly, I think there will be a one or two places in terms of setting up for what the 24 picture looks like and the, the looming Trump question as to whether you get election deniers elected to state legislatures and secretary of state positions. There will be a few. And that's going to be a significant, I'm not sure what you, you know, when you're, you're waving the airplane into the hangar, it's going to be one of those for Trump running, I think, which is important and impacts the landscape. And I also think there's going to be surprises that are equally important in terms of control of state houses and governorships. I mean, listen, we may have a Republican governor of Oregon, which, you know, that would be kind of shocking. There are some other races like that in which a red wave would flip some houses significantly. And then lastly, and something we were talking about before we started recording, We've spilt a lot on the the races for Senate that are everything pivots on Georgia, Nevada, which probably goes Republican. Pennsylvania is closer and closer, et cetera. One that people don't talk about enough is Utah, which is not – there's not really a viable Democrat running in Utah. But the Evan McMullen's phenomenon there I think is really important. And if there were sort of a surprise in terms of Senate composition, it's certainly possible that it's like 49, 50, and 1, which would be – and that one would be very different from like a Bernie Sanders not who caucuses with. Those are the, I mean, between federal, state, and then surprises. That's what I'm kind of yeah. watching. Agree with all of it. Well, I will say that, you know, having lived in a bunch of red states, historically red states, I think a lot of people discount the state level elections. And I think the Republican Party for a decade or so now has been just far better at running the ground game. Far better. And they, I think they've almost systematized it. So, I'm less concerned about House and Senate. I think we kind of know how that goes, right? Yeah. House, yes. Republican, again, the buffer is kind of a question mark. Senate, it's not really going to matter. It's going to be 48, 49, 48, 49, plus or minus. And then you're going to have one or two people out there who are just going to do whatever the hell they feel like, right? And that's fine. The thing, though, that it does impact at the legislative side is number one is we will struggle to have an operating budget in the United States. Absolutely. And it will be CR after CR after CR, continuing resolution for those who aren't as wonkish as we are. And it does mean that a huge amount of stuff that we are currently funding does not get funded. And I think the last budget we have will be the budget that kind of passed right now. Like we won't get a budget until, yeah. and, until there's either a democratic swing back in the house, which will take a cycle or two yeah. it'll probably happen. And then if a Republican wins the 2024 and becomes president, then we'll get a budget. But there will be two years of almost lame duck and it will be a structural lame duck that the Republican leaderships use will to compress the ability of the U.S. government to execute. Yeah. And Ukraine is an example of that. There will be a lot of other examples of things that will happen that will people won't even it won't even get to page three, let alone yeah. front page above the fold. Right. So we're going to be operating in a period of sustained uncertainty if you want. I, just to impact that from a market's perspective for our listeners, I mean, I, I agree with the sustained uncertainty, but I think as far as financial condition tightening, fiscal wherewithal and predictability, but also shock absorption is a meaningful input Absolutely. into financial conditions. And so we will be having, at least depending on the duration of the Fed's commitment to tighten, we will be having fiscal and monetary tightening simultaneously yes. for a meaningful period yes. over the next months and quarters. I think it goes without saying that the perfect triumvirate of QT, high rates, compressed federal budget, which is the largest you know input into the yep. U.S. economy, plus all of these other downstream things that hang off of that, 
And whether or not you can argue how many recessions fit on a head of a pin, if we aren't in one now, which I kind of argue we are in one, we will be in one and we will be in one for a while. It might not be the worst, but I look at 2023 and into 2024 as don't log into your accounts unless you have to. Well, all right. I want to end on a uplifting, positive note here. Can you just briefly describe your relationship with the late, great Senator McCain? So this is actually one of the first times I think I've ever gotten to tell this story. And it's certainly the first time it's being recorded. First off, I miss Senator McCain tremendously. He was a thoughtful guy. He was a patriot. He was just a wonderful human being to be around. And I had the very lucky fortune to meet him a few times. There was a a time when I was injured in the middle of a desert and uh, I'm sitting there with a bunch of medics hovering around me, stitching me up. And he jumps out of his uh, SUV and comes and walks over and has, and I have this lovely conversation with him that I really don't remember too much of, but we were sitting there chatting and he was trying to keep me from passing out because of blood loss actually. And uh, I had been shot and we were just like having this lovely chat. And It occurred to me recently when, uh, and I think this is G3, what kind of spawned this conversation is I was thinking about high quality political leaders and Senator McCain was a guy where you put him at the desk, you make him make the hard call. He makes the call. He might make a call that he personally disagrees with, but he'd make it because he knew it was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. I struggle to find people like that in the current zip codes I live in because I live in DC and we're in a moment where I remember not what we talked about when I was leaning on this Humvee covered in dust and blood. I remember him just being a good guy and just talking to me and keeping me from passing out and telling me funny stories. And he gave me one of his Navy caps, which I still have, which is like, you know, one of my treasured possessions at this point. And it was an amazing experience to meet someone who could be the guy who stands on the stage and gives the speech, but also be the guy who would just sit there and have his hand on your shoulder and just be like, been there, man. It's all good. You're going to be fine. And Uh, Thanks for giving me a chance to tell at least a subset of this story. I don't think I'm going to be able to tell you the whole story around this one. Well, uh, you've you've told enough. And thank you for at least sharing that. And most importantly, thank you for gracing us with your presence today. I think I speak for Mike and Jordy and the whole firm by saying it was a distinct honor to have you. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me, guys. This was a lot of fun. And for those who listen to this podcast, every time I come into Weiss office, this is the stuff we talk about. So if you get the chance to do it, you should. All righty. Thanks so much. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health-related information shared on this podcast is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit 
www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.